And before you know it, you wake up and just go, I do have the confidence in myself to set these huge, astronomical, ridiculous goals because I've built up that faith in myself and proven myself right enough time. So, you know, take the leap today to set that first small goal and see how that snowball can kind of build. This podcast does not constitute medical advice. All changes surrounding medications, diet and exercise should be made in consultation with a professional who can assess your unique health circumstances. Welcome to the Rheumatoid Solutions Podcast with Clint Pattison, helping you to live an easier, healthier, and happier life. Today's guest is going to be inspirational. He was diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis at age 15 and Reynolds, but that did not stop him and in fact motivated him to grow one of the largest corporate gym chains around the world called Hardcore Fitness and used fitness as a way to eliminate his symptoms and lead an amazing life. In fact, getting his body to a position where he was ranked twice top 10 world WBFF pro muscle model. Okay, so the man is seriously ripped. He's an he's a inspiration, and it's a real pleasure to welcome Larry Nolan to the episode. Awesome. Thank you. I mean, I need to bring you around with me for that introduction. It makes me feel great. <laughs> yeah, wonderful. So, uh, look, um, let's, let, we're going to have some fun here, and, and uh, let's start with the, with the big challenge. Uh, you were diagnosed at, at 15, and uh, let's just see, what you, see if you can get back into how you felt with that diagnosis and, and whether or not you realized at the time just how severe a rheumatoid arthritis diagnosis was. Yeah. So when I was young, you know, I, I was pretty active. So I loved to go surfing and I loved to play, play sports and do things. So at 15, I was just getting more into those things. I had a very active group of friends. And so we would go to the beach and we would surf and we were uh, of lower income. We didn't have wetsuits or anything. And, and it was, you know, times where the water was pretty cold and I would turn very blue. So around the nose and mouth and hands would turn very blue. And so they started nicknaming me Blueberry Larry. And so I just thought it was, you know, we all teased each other. So one day I was at home and they're calling me Blueberry Larry. And my mom's like, what's this name of Blueberry Larry? And they're like, oh, every time he gets cold, his face is bright blue and his hands are swollen and blue. And she's like, she was a medical transcriptionist. So she's not a doctor, but knowledgeable uh, in, in the medical field. So she realized that was an issue. Um, we went to a general doctor and they said, there's, there's an issue and then sent me to a specialist. Um, and I still had no clue what any of what any of this was. Um, and so they ran some tests and they came back and the initial diagnosis was, was that it was severe. You have secondary and it's real bad. Um, you're, you're never going to play sports. You're not going to get insurance. Your life's, you know, um, it was it, it, at 15. I was, I was pretty shocked. They gave me a, a list of some medications, some corticosteroids and things. And we went home and my mom and I had a really good relationship. And so we sat down and I was really distressed. And so she had said, look, you get to make this decision of what you want to do. You know, you're, you're not an adult, but you're 15. And I don't want to force you to take medications, but I want you to understand what it means. So I'd like you to, to talk to the doctor and really understand what the repercussions are of, of each situation. Um, so I, I had another visit with the doctor. They wanted to send me to another specialist. Um, and we talked about things. And like I'm sure many of your viewers have gone through is, it's not super concise. It's like, well, this could help, but it could cause these problems. And so it almost confused me more than helped me. The more I talked to him, it just felt like I was being pulled in two very different directions. So I went home 
And uh, I think that part of it is being a young man and just uh, us men, we don't like to do what we're supposed to do. Um, we go against the grain and do things we're told not to do. And part of it was like, I, I don't know, you know, who your role models were when you were young, but I was like, I loved watching Rocky and Jean-Claude Van Damme doing the splits. Um, and so that was like what I saw of myself when I got older was being very physically fit and active. So like to me, as it kind of came to this, this conclusion that I'm making more making a decision of what my life is going to look like than what I'm going to do right now is Am I going to accept the reality that my life is going to be that I don't play sports? I can't exercise. I'm going to take these medications forever. Is it going to be the reality that the doctor said, or am I at least going to go out and try to find a different solution? That was more how I rationalized it was. Those are the two choices I'm really making right now. And so for me, it was saying that isn't an option. I'm not going to live that life. Um, I'm also not going to just totally go against what was being said. But I started to, I got the first book that I ever read because I did not like school. Um, the first book that I ever read was on biomechanics and exercise and things like that. And I started seeing like, okay, some of these things could be beneficial, but I, the doctor told me about flare-ups and things like that. So I went in the garage. My dad had given me an old, an old rusty standard weight set. And I just started kind of experimenting. And like, again, many of you viewers are probably relate to is it was not a good reaction initially. My bot, my, my hands swelled up, my wrists were swollen. I was in pain. It made things feel worse. So I, I decided what I'm going to do is uh, I, I, I just felt my body and felt like at a certain point it felt good, but at a certain point it felt bad. So I just kind of pulled back a little bit. I did a little bit less exercise, a little bit less weight, and just kind of took time over a period of about six months to really learn my body. And when, when I do certain things, how do I feel after? So it was very much of like a controlled study just of myself. And so I was taking notes on everything, had a little notebook and would just kind of analyze how I was feeling. And I got to this really great place where not only did I not feel bad after the workouts, I didn't feel bad after even the workouts that made me feel bad originally. And I didn't even see a lot of symptoms, even in the cold and things like that. So I really noticed a very, a very big difference. And that was kind of it at that point we would even go on vacation to my grandparents' house in Yosemite and they'd find me in a trailer reading a book on fitness. You know, I was just really at that point, super interested in what it was able to do for me. Again, I never did a ton of research on actual rheumatoid arthritis or Raynaud's. It was more the interest in the different ways that the fitness was helping me. And I had to use a fake ID at 16 to become a personal trainer because you had to be 18 at the time. So most kids were using a fake ID to go to clubs and, and I had to use it to, to get a job as a trainer. And, you know, that's kind of where, where everything started. And I, I went through corporate gyms, um, started my own and, and ended up working with a, a few really instrumental clients that made this journey really cool for me was being able to help a few clients as well. Where do you get, because you dropped out from school. Okay. So what was your relationship like with your father who you mentioned bought you a, a, a weights kit? Um, mm -hmm. Which parent gave you this sort of attribute of, I can, I can do this, or there's going to be an answer? Where does that come from? Because it obviously hasn't come through your you know, formal education here, but there's something in you that was like, nothing's going to stop me here. Yeah, I would say both of them. My dad was a really, it was an amazing father. He was a kid that would pick us up in his Volkswagen van with all the kids on the block and take us for ice cream and take us to the beach. The relationship at the time when this had happened was... I think it fueled me in both ways, what he had instilled in me, but our relationship, he had, he had an addiction problem. So we weren't really speaking a lot at that time, but I almost feel like it, the lessons he taught me and the drive to be better 
than the situation he was in. Both kind of really at that point really lit a fire in me. So school wasn't good. My relationship with my dad wasn't good. Um, my mom's, the relationship with my mom kind of dwindled, but I almost feel like it was a combination of, they were great parents and instilled lessons in me that really told me like, you aren't restricted by the fact that we don't have money or the fact like, these are just the situations we're in. That isn't who we are. And so they really kind of implanted that in me. And I feel like a lot of kids were all told when we're young, you could be an astronaut, you know, you could, you could be the president. And over time, because of failures, we stop believing that. And I feel like sometimes our parents get defeated and kind of stop instilling that too. And mine really never did. Like no matter what, when I even got in trouble with the law, as I was going to jail, my dad told me he was proud of me. So it was like, there were always those things that like, whatever situation I was in didn't define who I was. And they really instilled that in me. So it kind of carried through into other things that I did. Okay. You just dropped a heavy nugget there. Um, <laughs> when I was going to jail, okay, so I I can't not ask about that, uh, given that that one's just been dropped. Uh, but 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 before we before we touch upon that, because you know we're not going to gloss over a reality. Life is ups and downs, and I think that's what's so appealing about your story and what you've done is that you've hit rock bottom. You're not only with your health at, at a teenage years. But we'll talk about, of course, stuff I don't know about. I have no idea what 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 you did, what happened thereafter with what you just said. But let's explore that in a minute, if you don't mind. Um, yeah. And so in terms of the rheumatoid and the rhinos, though, you were able to, uh, as a teen, eliminate those physical symptoms that you're observing through regular workouts at home with your own equipment, starting out real gentle, and then uh, slowly ramping up, being mindful of what hurts, what doesn't, and pacing yourself. Yeah. And then nutrition too, I realized that certain foods really made me feel those symptoms much worse. So it wasn't so much the food by itself, but I noticed the correlation of the things I was eating as well as the stress I put on my body really made things feel very bad. So the combination, as I started experimenting with different things, I started to feel really good. And when I would change one of those I guess if you would call them an experimental variable, that one variable would change and it really changed the outcome of how I felt. So I kind of was able to, to meander through both of those areas. Which is precisely what we teach and talk about with other guests is we need to get our exercise right and our diet right. So it's exactly the same concepts as what we what's consistent with everything else that we talk about. So yeah. coming out of this situation, you've now wanted to become a personal trainer at 16 uh, you've gotten a fake ID. Was that what got you into trouble? Um, or uh, and 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 how long? Well, you, you're shaking your head, so maybe uh, I understand. <laughs> no, um, how long did you do personal training, and what did you learn from personal training? Yeah, so the the fake ID was actually like I had said at that point. My relationship with my parents really started to disintegrate. I had had a stepdad that came in the picture. It was a very volatile relationship. We ended up in a physical altercation, and then I was out. So at 16 years old. I was living in the Antelope Valley, which is, you know, some of the, the rappers sing about it. It was a bad area. And I lived in a house with a few grown men that I had met at a party. So I was 16. I had to take the bus to school and the bus to, to, to 24-hour fitness after. I didn't have a car. And so that situation, the, the fake ID was actually a roommate's uh, cousin's military ID. And it just looked like me. And so that kind of that worked out. And that didn't end up being the thing that, that got me in trouble. I had never... I was, I always wanted to be a police officer. So I, I never really did anything that was wrong. That was illegal. I was the kid that was calling the police on people that would tag on a wall or something, you know? So I was kind of the, they would joke and say I was a narc, but I was always the kid that was very, very on path. And 
I'm able to definitely relate with people that make bad life, life decisions and not say that they can blame it on their circumstances, but be empathetic because I truly do feel like that's what kind of led me into some of the, some of the decisions that I made. Um, the situations weren't necessarily things that I regret. Um, but continuing down the path was bad. The, the reason I got in trouble was there was a friend of mine that, that was threatened by another guy. And uh, I had approached him and thought that maybe it was just in the heat of the moment. And he said, no, if I see her, I'm going to physically harm her. And we ended up in an altercation and he ended up very, just very unluckily becoming very injured, permanently injured. And so at that point, I just felt like my life's over. I'm going to end up in a lot of trouble. And literally two weeks later, another friend's girlfriend ends up having a guy try to attack her. We end up in a fight. He ends up getting cauliflower ear and was supposed to go in the Navy the next day. So now I have the military police after me. And it just kind of was one of those where you just feel like some, this was just horrible luck. I don't really regret defending this woman, but I, I'm very sorry that it ended badly. And then it was those decisions after were just more careless because I just felt like my life's over. I'm in so much trouble. I'm never going to be able to get out of this. So, you know, it's like, I don't talk to my parents. I, I live on my own. I've, life's just so bad, you know? So um, it kind of led to that situation. I, I ended up getting uh, two felonies and was, was sent to jail at, you know, a very young age and was working on my third strike. At that point, they considered them violent, violent, offense, uh, violent offenses. Trying to find positives in this. Um, you know, my dad, my dad often gives examples of people like Nelson Mandela, who spent a lot of time in jail and, and, and has a lot of, had a lot of time to contemplate and make really, really deep considerations about life and the world. Were you able to, during that time, rethink your situation and what you needed to do differently? And would you say that you made some big connections for the better? Yeah. I mean, it was so like people still, they'll hear a lot of the story and people hear more of it. And one of the first questions, you know, was like, do you wish you'd had a better run of luck or wish these things hadn't happened? And we hear it a lot, but it's true that I, I really wouldn't change anything because every single one of these things was so pivotal in, in where I ended up. When I went in, I think there's a lot of people. And when, when you go to jail, you'll see people that really are almost just okay there. Like it really isn't a hard time. They're very fine. Like this is, they just are good. Like as long as I'm here, I'm here. For me, it was t absolutely terrible. I hated every second of it. And I, I was like, this is not ever happening. You know, and, and I tell my wife now, is there still no goes if somebody were to physically try to harm my wife or something like that you you could still i could still potentially end up there but i'm going to be very careful and i'm never going to do something careless to end up in that position for sure and it really drove me because at that point is when i really wanted to pursue fitness more one because i had that time to reflect and realize that's really what made me happy and at that point i was doing fitness but i was doing other stuff and i was getting trying to go in directions that made more money and so i realized like I need to, I need to get away from the money aspect. And even if I don't make a lot of money doing this, it's what makes me happy. So I need to pursue this. And the other thing was, you know, a lot of people, you know, don't realize the difficulty of trying to start your life when you get out of jail and you have a felony, but it, it is nearly impossible. And so the reality I came to before I got out was, I know this is going to be hard, which I still didn't know how hard it was truly going to be, but I need to start my own business of some sort because I'm not going to get hired anymore. So I might be able to get hired at a gym as a personal trainer, but I'm, if I want the life I want, which was always to retire my mom and I want to take care of my family and I don't want, you know, I, I want my family to be good. If I want that, there's one path. Now. The rest of the past don't exist. Nobody's going to trust me or hire me. So I'm going to have to create my own destiny. And so that there were many times where I probably had other offers or opportunities that I realized wouldn't work because of this situation. And it made me stay on the right path. It's fascinating. 
it's almost like the only way you were ever going to create such a successful, you know, uh, gym chain is is by starting your own business. But other easier paths probably would have been on the table and attractive had you not had only one option. Yep. Yeah. I mean, it's looking back is is seeing that as the times where I would want to give up and things were so bad. And again, it didn't happen overnight and I made every mistake possible. So it was all the time for about 10 years, I wanted to quit. It was just really hard all the time. But one is I am resilient and this is what I wanted. But another, that, that was always in the back of my mind of if you want this life, you want, my mom never owned her own car that ran for more than a few weeks. Like you want to buy her a car, you want to retire her, you want to buy her a house you better keep going. Like this is your path. You're going to accept mm. that life that you're not going to do that for your family or yourself, or you're going to keep going down this. And I do think that it was, it, it, it had that not happened. I don't know where I would have been. Mm. Now, a lot of your other uh, interviews may have been fascinated with how to build a big corporate gym chain and also that sort of stuff. My audience is going to be uh, interested in in that a little bit. So we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit, but I want to talk about you working with other people with rheumatoid arthritis as well. Yeah. Uh, I know you mentioned that you've assisted other people with rheumatoid arthritis with their physical ailments and, and made great progress with them. So for those people wondering if we're going to, to go back more to rheumatoid arthritis, we absolutely will. But let's first of all, just close out your personal sort of career journey here and, uh, and, and tell us when, at what point did you think, you know what? I've done it. Like when with your gym uh, empire, did you realize, holy crap, I have crushed this. It's huge. Yeah. I mean, I don't know that there was a single time because again, it didn't really, I had all these little goals. So I made sure to always feel good about each one. So I remember growing up and hearing about people that would make six figures was the life. You know, you could do great things for people and, and all the, that you love if you could make six figures. So even though it wasn't all the money I brought home, I set a goal of when my business makes a hundred thousand, even though I have expenses, I'll feel really good because that's a, a milestone. Uh, and I remember the exact spot, the car I was driving in and looking at, looking at my phone and telling my wife, we did it. You know, we've made a hundred thousand dollars. So I remember a lot of those moments that I felt just so good, but honestly, they were from the beginning of like getting the first few clients or we were very early on with Groupon. We were one of the first people to do like a fitness deal. And we got a lot of clients out of that. Um, so there were these moments where even though we weren't making a lot of money and it wasn't a big name, I felt very accomplished to reach these these little milestones. And I feel like, you know, it's it's like that very much relatable to, to rheumatoid arthritis or other things is it isn't going to happen overnight. And if you're only going to be happy when everything is perfect, it's going to be hard to endure that 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 period of time that you have to go through those struggles. So for me, it was a lot of those moments you know, the, the moment that I really felt like I could be done at this moment and, you know, be taken from this world and be okay was the moment that I was able to retire my mom and buy her, her first home. And like, that's going to be, that'll be the best moment of my life forever. So that'll never be taught. So for me was, that was the point where I realized the business has gotten to a point to empower me to do the things I always wanted to do and dreamed of as a kid. And so that was probably the biggest moment that it felt like this has done something really powerful, at least for me, where there's been other moments where it's done powerful things for other people. Mm. Are you still as passionate about the uh, corporate space? And are you, have you still got these ongoing goals for yourself? And are we only just seeing the beginning of what you're going to achieve? Yeah. And I, we've something that, that I think is interesting is that, that I didn't realize wasn't common was I've never with myself or now with any of our staff or corporate team ever set financial goals. So I don't ever say by the end of this year, 
I want to make another 5 million or I want the company to grow this. There's never been a single conversation about that. It's always about it because it started as passion. And it was just like, look, I, I was at corporate gyms and I got away from that. And I went to a city park and we did an outdoor fitness boot camp because there, and those didn't exist then. This was in like 2006. So the fitness boot camp that we all think of now didn't exist then. If you said boot camp, you thought military. But I had no money and I had no other way. So I was like, I'm just going to go to a park and I'll be able to offer training for less money to more people and I'll leverage my time and their value. So it's always been a value proposition to me is this is what I love. How do I offer more value and offer something better? And even though I don't know anything about business, uh, this just makes sense to me and I'll probably do okay. Um, and so that's always what it's been. So I continue to be passionate about it because I don't, I don't have to wake up and, and worry about, are we going to make an extra 5 million? Or are we going to open 10 more gyms? It's always a fun project of how do we make this better? What are we not, what, what is something we could add? So today we just added a new aspect of at-home workouts that are free to our members. I, those little value ads are exciting to me. How do we leverage this in a way to where we can figure out how to optimize this to give this to these people and just be the best at what we do? And at the end of the day, the chips will probably fall in our favor. So yeah, that keeps me passionate all the time. There's always something that you can do to improve on the process, the procedure, the product, and make this better for everybody that comes. So you're very customer focused. You're thinking about, will this help my customers? And will this make their lives better, make them happier, get more results for them? And so all your decisions are around, will it be good for the customer? And you found that by focusing all energy into that thought, everything takes care of itself. Yeah. And I always felt in the beginning, like felt very, and I think a lot of people relate to it as you feel almost uneducated because you don't really understand how to get where you want to be. So you're always like, I'm just trying this because it's the best I know, but I don't really know what I'm doing. And sometimes you wake up and just realize always what I was doing was the right thing. And this is one of those scenarios where I just felt like all I know is training and helping people. And I know that's what I like. So that's what I'm going to do. And I made a very real decision. I downsized, got rid of cars, went to an apartment and said, uh, again, I got away from those other jobs. I did selling foods to Costco and things like that, sushi. So they made more money, but I didn't love it. So I said, look, if I don't make money doing this, that'll be okay. I'm going to try. But if I don't make money doing this, I'll be okay waking up each day and doing something that I love. So that was the first realization. And then when I did the business stuff, I felt like I don't know what I'm doing and I'm probably dumb, but I'm going to do what, I, what I'm happy to do and what I think I'm good at. And I'm a good trainer and I like helping people. And as I went down that road, that just kind of was the road I stayed on. And as it became every aspect of the business that just continued to kind of be the process. And then all these years later, I look back and just go, I wouldn't have changed any of that. I think that's really what made us special and made the program good um, in, in each way. And I think that it's you know a, a testament to just kind of trusting not just our, our mind, but our heart. When something feels right, a lot of the time it usually is. Mm. Let's talk about uh, working with people and working with people with rheumatoid arthritis. After you started to do your personal training at age 16, you had people in the outdoor boot camp at the park and so on. Did any of those group at that time have any physical ailments that enabled you to get that experience of what it's like to work with people who have certain challenges? And you know what? What did you first learn about you know working with people who don't maybe want to exercise or have trouble exercising? And how do you get them to 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 get it done? Yeah. So those are some some good topics. So. So at that point, I had, I had started training at 16. And this point, I was about 22. So I'd already had some pretty good experience, a decent level of experience with training. I had, I had pro athletes and I had people that, were, that had a lot of weight to lose. So I'd, I'd established some good experience at that point. And so by the time we were out at the park, it started with just my mom and my now wife. Those were my only two 
my mom has other ailments. She had to have her thyroid removed and other things like that. So she was, she was over a hundred pounds overweight at five foot tall. She'd never been able to never exercise. She didn't like exercise, but she was, as some of your viewers could probably attest it as a mom, it doesn't matter whether you want to do it. You sacrifice for your kids. And that was what she did. She drove 45 minutes each way up and down a Canyon to come. And she would come to multiple classes a day because I didn't have clients and I felt embarrassed if a new client came, it was awkward for them. So she would come sometimes multiple times a day and do these grueling workouts, uh, support her son. And she would pretend she was a member and be running with them. Like, isn't this great? You should sign up. So, um, it was, you know, mom was out there doing the most as she always did. And she ended up losing a hundred pounds in, in the, before our first year was up, she'd lost a hundred pounds, been one of our first posters, you know, of, of our transformation. Um, and we just one at a time started getting more clients and a lot of them had, had issues. So it was a group of moms at first and they all had their different ailments and it wasn't long. I'd say probably, uh, a year or so of us being at the park and my first and my biggest rheumatoid arthritis client had come along. Um, and so there were a lot of things kind of working against us when it came to the rheumatoid arthritis, which was we're outdoors and our classes a lot of time are in the morning. So it's cold. So Joanne Manzo, who's become, you know, a lifelong friend now and, and just an amazing person, she comes out, we're at a park, it's dark, I've got a flashlight out there, you know, and so she comes out and she's about 100 pounds overweight. She's an older woman. And she starts, I would always do an assessment with each person talk to what are your needs? What are your health needs? And she starts telling me about the rheumatoid arthritis. And she was on her way that day after the stores open to go get a wheelchair. So they had told her you need to get a wheelchair because that's going to be what you need to do. So, you know, it, it was a kind of a perplexing situation because I so badly wanted to help her, but I also realized we're outside, it's cold. So I wanted to be really honest with her. So I just said, listen, you know, I have rheumatoid arthritis. You know, she said, oh, it doesn't, I, I wouldn't guess. And it doesn't seem like it. I said, well, as you know, it doesn't ever go away, you know, but I don't, I don't really feel those symptoms. So I said, I would love to be able to help you, but it's going to be a slow process. I'm going to need you to bundle up. So you're going to be in all these clothes. You're going to be sweating more. I was like, it's going to be, it's going to be a challenge. Um, and she said, we just connected. And she just, from that moment on, she was literally a different person from that moment on a week, maybe a week later, two weeks later, she came and said, she'd been coming every day. Every day she came, we did a very little bit. She would stand next to me and I would tell her while everyone else does something else, you're going to stand next to me and I'll have you do something. So we did a little at a time and she came and said, Hey, I've got this issue. My husband doesn't really understand the rheumatoid arthritis, doesn't understand my weight and isn't supportive. And so, you know, just as a friend, I just kind of told her, look, you know, you need to talk to him, tell him how important it is. And if you want to be healthy, this is what you have to do. You have to, you have to be able to make these changes. So talk to him and, and try to get him on board and, and, and understand. She came back the next day or two days later and said, I, he doesn't understand. He's not being kind about it. I'm divorcing him. And so she was so serious about fixing this problem that she said, we've tried to have these talks. We're not on the same page. He's not about this lifestyle. He doesn't want me to exercise. He doesn't want that. So I'm divorcing him. I said, okay, well, I didn't encourage you to do that, but I'm, I said, you know, I don't want to be, I'm not that guy, but I said, I'm very proud of you for being so serious about not ending up in that wheelchair. And she said, I don't want to go get that wheelchair. Like, I don't want to do that. Um, it's been 15 years. She still comes to my gym all the time. She's done a professional, she's done a fitness competition and stood on stage. And I think she was over 60 at the time. She's lost over hundred pounds. She's done triathlons. She's done every physical activity that you can probably think of. And she's the most inspiring person that to this day, you wouldn't guess that she has a single ailment. She runs circles around 20 year olds at our classes and she never had to, she decreased her medications over time and eventually completely stopped taking everything. And she's been doing, doing really good since. So she's my, 
most inspiring client that has been. She came from the park outdoors with limited equipment and has just been able to to stay with us and slowly progress to this amazing, amazing place. I mean, we've got pictures of her with the group of competitors we had at a fitness comp- bikini competition. And she's, you know, 30 years older than some of these girls and just looks amazing and, and, and strutted her stuff. And it was just a really, as a trainer, this moment of pride, seeing everything she sacrificed to get to that place was really cool. Oh man, it's, you know, just that story alone would make you feel like everything that you've done is worth it. I mean, the contribution to that individual's life is so profound that you only have to think about her and you realize it's worth it. You know, everything that I've done. Yeah. And she's an amazing, she's an amazing person. You know, you'll see her at, you know, at my birthday parties and stuff. And it's like, <laughs> she's just this really great person. And, you know, uh, I always said that when my mom lost her weight, I felt like I truly got to know my, not my mom for the first time because she was happier and healthier and more energetic. She didn't have to take naps. And she, you know, and I felt that way about mm-hmm. Joanne was the woman that came to the park the first day was not the woman that she is today. She, it could be 15 years later, but she acts 15 years younger than the day I met her. And she's way more just, she's friends with everybody. She dances at class. And I mean, it just is a really cool thing to see when you take, take charge of your life and you, you face those obstacles head on. It's not just that you're not getting in that wheelchair, but I don't think you realize that all the other differences in your life, your relationships and everything else. And it's just been really cool to see her thrive in, in such an amazing way. It's, uh, it's almost like the pain and the concern, the anxiety, the, the heaviness, the darkness of having that ongoing diagnosis and physical condition. It does cloak us and keep us almost hidden from who we truly are underneath. And especially when some of us are taking medications, I used to take a drug called methotrexate and that drug uh, had certain side effects to me, which made me feel uh, flat and, and lethargic all the time. And you add uh, that to the mix in some instances, if there are side effects like that, you know, it's like, where is the real Larry under there? Where is the real Joanne? Where are they? Because it's just so heavy on this person. So to unveil that real person and get that childlike behavior back out again, it's just, that's just, that's extraordinary. Yeah. I mean, I couldn't have said it better. That's, uh, I mean, it really is. And I feel like it's that way. You know, my mom's was a thyroid issue, but she was on medication as well. You know, some of my clients are just, they're, they're very, they're very obese. And that's, you're, you're dealing with the depression of dealing with something that limits you. You're dealing with medications that make you not yourself. Um, you're dealing with the feeling of defeat, embarrassment. You know, it's, it changes so many things we would talk about. I still do an an orientation. We do different uh, programs at our gym and I do live orientations. And I still use my, my mom as an example where she was my biggest like hater critic a lot of the time. And it would frustrate me and we would go out to eat and she would eat a burger and I'd eat a salad and she would give me a hard time and be like, Oh wow, you have to eat a salad. And after she lost weight, you know, she really opened up and it made us even closer. And she said, I was embarrassed. You know, I felt I felt like I wasn't capable of having the self-control you did and making good life decisions. I was, I was, I was not able to be where I wanted to be. So being around you and seeing you do it made me feel uncomfortable, made me feel bad, you know? So I think it's like that in so many of these areas, rheumatoid arthritis definitely included seeing somebody else go do something physical. I could see sometimes where you might be negative towards that person, not because you want to be, but you're just so frustrated. You know, you see other people doing things you can't do. And you just feel really limited and depressed and unhappy. And it really does affect people, I think, more than they even realize. Absolutely. You can almost be forgiven for any behavioral trait when you have so much frustration and pain. Any kind of behavior is, you know, 
is somewhat understandable, if if even forgivable, because that person just isn't going through a normal life process at that time. It's hard. It's it's horrible. Yeah, I think that empathy it's, is a huge thing. Is really a lot of people may on through it, but being able to just at least even from the outside try to understand what they're going through can help you be more forgiving. Because, like I said, that was. I, my mom would, oh, you got to go work out again. Oh, you're going to eat healthy. You know? And I'm like, you're supposed to be my mom. You're supposed to be supportive. You know? But now looking back, it's of course so easy to understand why that wasn't the case. You know? and, and it's just so easy to see her point of view of why that was so hard for her to go through. She wants to be the leader and she feels like she's a disappointment. And she's, she's not capable of going, I want to go for a walk and I invite her and she gives me a hard time. It was because in her mind, I can't go for that walk. You know, I know I'm going to die out there on that walk and I can't do it. So mm-hmm. um, yeah, I think that it, it's important for people that are friends or family of people that have rheumatoid arthritis or other ailments is to really understand that, like you said, is some of those things that are said or done or some of those behaviors are absolutely not targeted towards the individual that are doing those things. It's because they're in a, in a position that's making them feel, feel a certain way. Have you got any other examples or case studies with rheumatoid arthritis or do you have a set of guidelines, just general principles that you could speak to for people who are thinking, you know what? I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna try a bit more of this. Yeah. So I had one other girl named Corey. Both towards the end of uh, Joanne starting to get to more more of a serious state of fitness, where she really wanted to be uh, intense with her workouts. She was starting to feel you know some some issues and some flare ups. And then I had another girl Corey that came in had lupus and rheumatoid arthritis, and so she ended up having these flare ups. So I decided, I said, look, you know, she was friends with her doctor. I said, let me talk to your doctor and I'd like to learn more. So we ended up speaking. He was a specialist and he was a really cool guy. And so we went through stuff and he said, why don't you look into these things? These are some of the tests we do. Let's see how they correlate with your knowledge of biomechanics and these other things. Let's see physiology. Let's see how, how these things work. And the one thing, the key indicator that I use that just seemed to work, I guess, very easily as far as simplifying things was CPK testing and CPK levels. So those muscle enzymes. And so what happens a lot of the time that's correlated that we noticed, we, we first tested it with Corey was they will a lot of the time with lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, other inflammatory diseases, they will test CPK levels. And so they, ch- they try to test these levels that are these muscle enzymes. And, and they'll notice that when they get elevated to a certain state, that can be an indication of additional stress and, and issues. And the body is now trying to fight that. And so that can sometimes be a, a correlating factor. So it hadn't really been looked at as far as exercise in that. It was just a test to see like, okay, is this high and this high and that high? We're probably not in a good place. So when we started looking at different variables, that one key indicator ended up being kind of my go-to with anybody that had these things where each person, there isn't a set number because some people's CPK levels can be higher and not cause certain levels of distress or inflammation. So we noticed that when we would test Joanne's and Corey's, they were different. Corey could have a higher level of CPK and be okay, where Joanne's was lower. I don't know if it is because she's older or just tolerance, if it's, you know, just individuals or genetics. So what we would do is instead of testing that only with a flare up or every, every so often, we would test them weekly. And so what I would do is I would say, look, you're going to come in, we're going to do this, this low tolerance workout. You're going to do a couple of these exercises, lightweight, and then I'm gonna, you're going to go get tested. And so pretty quickly over a period of, you know, two to four weeks, we would start to know, all right, this was too much exercise. And we really knew at that point, we were able to correlate the too much exercise with the CPK levels that were causing these, these uh, effects. So they were able to feel, I feel lethargic and I'm swollen and I don't feel good. And so at that point, it became a lot easier for us over a period of maybe three or four months 
where we wouldn't necessarily have to test as often because we'd find a rhythm, but we'd say, okay, this is the volume of exercise that you're able to tolerate. And this is that level of CPK. And so we know this much causes this much muscle enzyme. And so then from there, it was just a very gradual. So say um, one of the key things I would suggest to to the listeners is you don't want to do individual body part training. So say do a lot of say bicep curls, something like that is isolating one muscle group causes a lot of muscle trauma and increases CPK a lot. So broad movements. So, you know, doing like a squat to a press or doing a squat with a pull. So kind of working the whole body a little bit at a time resting and just do that a few times. So say, uh, you've probably seen those suspension straps, the TRX straps that hang off a wall that have the handles. If you got something like that and you squatted down to the ground, stand and pull, and you did that for a handful of reps just until it starts to feel like you're getting fatigued. You don't want to push yourself to absolute failure. Uh, Then from there, give yourself two, three minutes rest. So adequate rest, do that again. Maybe do that three times and that would be it. That would be your whole first workout. And then assess yourself days later. Give yourself time for your body to fully respond to that and assess. If you don't, if you feel sore, and that'll be the first thing is most people with, with these ailments soreness is correlated with a problem. So that is the hard part with people that have their own arthritis is a lot of these, the, the similar aches that are natural from resistance training can feel like rheumatoid, like the, those other symptoms. So in the beginning is me always being careful with them to say, give your body a little time and let's see if it has that same response. Cause they'll start to feel sore and be like, oh man, I overdid it. And then they'll start to go, okay, this, this doesn't feel the same. I'm sore. It's kind of hard to straighten my arms out. My, my thighs are kind of sore. But then a few days later, they feel okay and they haven't had the other, the other, the joint flare ups and things like that that they may normally associate. And then from there, you would just add a few repetitions. Maybe you were able to do 15 of those squat pulls. The next time, you'll do 18 each time and then rest. And then you'll add one extra set. Maybe you'll do it four times. Now you'll add in a different exercise. And so it's just constantly doing that. And the beginning is patience because it is it can be frustrating to see other people doing more. And it's very natural for these people. They start to feel a little better. And then they're like, they're, they're hooked. And they're like, I want to go do five more. And so I, I noticed that was a, a normal theme is like we had talked about feeling unhappy and feeling bad. As soon as you start to feel good, you want more of that. So it's natural to kind of want to overdo it. So that's part of my job is to reel them in. Like that's going to do more harm than good. We really have to be patient. And even though I'm happy you're feeling better, doing more is going to set us back. It's not going to move the needle forward. So just being really patient and just very slowly adding in more weight, more repetitions, more exercises. And it really is, I've noticed that through those two severe cases and many other clients that have it, but not as severe, those two severe cases, Corey ended up being a a fitness competitor as well. And she ended up doing very well in NPC national bikini competitions with people that had no ailments and worked out at the highest level of fitness. So she ended up being able to be very tolerant to do amazing exercise. It just took maybe a year where another person might take a month. Sure. Yeah. But still incredible, right? Absolutely incredible. Yeah. No, I mean, it it was definitely very cool and it was a cool learning experience for me and working with the doctor and and he was very intrigued by it and interested too. And, you know, he was able to correlate those, those same things with basically autoimmune and other inflammatory diseases is he was able to kind of use that after as an example with other other patients. So um, it became cool. And that was kind of the one thing now is as I have people that come in, that's usually the advice that I give them is the same type of thing. And then let's monitor those CPK levels. And a lot of the time, it's that aha moment where you go, wait, I feel this way. And you're right. My levels, my levels are below that number. So now I know that I, I just have to work out to where I can kind of stay within those bounds. 
I'm, yes, I'm going to have to look into the CPK testing and do a little research on that. I haven't come across that before. Uh, so that's uh, going to be uh, interesting for me to, to, to look into. Uh, how is it measured? Is it a urine or a blood sample? Yeah. So, I mean, I think that they can test it in, in several different ways, but hers was blood sample. Yeah. So it's not, yeah. it's not so easy to do too often, but, um, but it's interesting to know that it can be done. Uh, okay. Yeah. And there might, there might be other ways that, that they're able to test it out too. And that second example was still probably eight years ago. So there might be, might be different ways now. And ours was probably once a week for the first couple of weeks. And then, and then I would say it was probably, you know, once every few weeks after that, once a month. And the doctor at that point wanted to be able to just make sure that even if she wasn't feeling the symptoms, we weren't still seeing those elevated levels. And I think, yeah, you get into a rhythm, as you said, you can start to almost predict what the levels will be based on how the person feels. You know that you've pushed a little bit too much. Um, and I think the rest of us who are doing this without the measurement uh, are just sort of going on uh, a gut feeling. And uh, I think if as long as you start low enough, then you're going to be fine. You, it's only going to go wrong if you start too hard too soon, right? 100 yeah. And I mean, mine obviously was the exact same situation. I didn't have any testing when I was young. It was just, well, that was too much and I don't feel good, you know? And so yeah. here's something I'm going to do. And a lot of the stuff that we correlated or that the doctor was correlating was, again, the autoimmune diseases and a lot of that stuff was, again, between the diet and the CPK levels. And it was just really measuring any type of stress that would that would induce any sort of inflammation was something that we were trying to eliminate. So it, the hard part with resistance training and increase, you know, the resistance training increases circulation and transports damaged tissue. Um, so that stuff is very therapeutic for the rheumatoid as well, because you're getting all of this fresh blood through, not just through the muscle, but it does transport, it's through the joints and that whole, that whole region, but you're creating, you're intentionally creating inflammation at that point, because you're trying to damage the muscles. So it's how do we damage the muscles in a small way without incurring that attack from the immune system and getting these flare ups. So as you stated, it just really is if you're patient enough, Anybody watching this, do very little. Stand, you know, hold on to a pole and squat your butt down ten times today. You know, do squats assisting yourself and be done. And do you feel anything tomorrow? So if you're patient enough to just start really low, you can find that success by just growing a tiny bit every time things feel okay. Yeah, I love it. Let's talk about your maintenance of your own health. I was interested to hear you say something that that certainly. We believe as a rheumatoid community, which is that it never really goes away. You can become asymptomatic and, and we've had plenty of case studies that we've shared where people have become asymptomatic without medications. It's as, it's as though the disease doesn't exist anymore, um, but we need to be cautious not to go crazy off the rails because uh, it's, uh, it's, it, it has the potential to, to bite us. So, you mentioned salad before. I found that interesting because I encourage people to eat lots of salad. Uh, in fact, our recommendations are um, more towards a plant-based diet. So are there any dietary uh, landmines that you have to avoid stepping on uh, for your health? And do you find that uh, if you're not super careful that things start to irritate you a little bit in a joint or two? Yeah, so there's been some really interesting, uh, interesting studies that have been done over the last like five years, uh, and and a few major people that that I'm influenced by have actually published these studies and posted them, and they're really interesting because they were studies that were either done because of a sickness or because of weight loss or obesity, and they ended up correlating with one another, and so they ended up finding very interesting findings. So um, 
you know, like the ketogenic diet was uh, initially, uh, you know, for, for seizures, for, you know, adolescent seizures, it was not meant to lose weight. And then they found that some people adhered to that diet and liked eating those foods. Um, so some of those crossover studies started to become more prominent. And the really, really interesting thing that's happened over the last few years that, that I think is really cool is they've done all of these studies to almost take away these simple solutions that are, that are money makers in, in nutrition, which are like, just eat this or don't ever eat this and your problems are solved. Um, which I'm just, I'm definitely not about. And I don't think that overall health or treating an ailment is a one solution thing. Eat this berry or just don't eat carbs. Sure. So the one thing that they have correlated across the board when they've done studies against each of these specific diet types was when you eat within a specific calorie range that is within maintenance or below maintenance, all of these other things end up becoming better. Cholesterol markers, blood pressure, all of these health markers that are correlated with these studies that are simply to, to calories inflammation, gut inflammation, things like that. So the really cool thing is for a lot of people, it doesn't even necessarily have to be a perfect diet off the bat. If you can equate calories to maintenance calories helps when you're losing weight, blood markers in every area become phenomenally better. The blood markers from everywhere, like I was saying, from inflammation down to chronic diseases, heart disease and things like that. People that were eating, they have one diet that was all junk food where somebody was eating like Twinkies every day. So horrible food in our mind but at the right calorie range to lose weight. They not only lo lost comparable amount of weight to people that were eating quote unquote healthy foods, but all of these health markers change as well. So I'm not saying that you should eat Twinkies or that proper foods don't help, but that the biggest mover of the needle in each of those areas was just portion control and eating the right amount of calories really helped the body optimize all of those functions. Um, now, on top of that, I do try to eat more, uh, you know, more technically healthy foods, less processed foods, and I think that the big thing is distinguishing between uh, somebody that wants better overall health or somebody that has ailments and wants better health. Because I think that just eating in a calorie range will help either person, but you're going to be much more limited probably in the help that you have if you're eating a lot of bad, technically bad foods, um, but in a calorie range. So for those people, uh, I have an, an uncle that was diagnosed with leukemia and, and we treated his with an all plant-based and, and a lot of fruits. And so a lot of fruit and, and plant-based where protein is is very hard to digest. I mean, over 30% of the calories consumed by protein are essentially burned just through digestion because it's so difficult for the body to break down these animals, especially mm -hmm. animal proteins. Um, so those things are not necessarily bad for a healthy individual, but somebody that has certain inflammation problems or health issues, it does put additional strain on the body. So switching over what we've seen for health reasons is switching over to, as you had mentioned, more of a plant and, and you know, fruits and vegetables based diet uh, ends up being something that, that people see on a cellular level, a lot more health overall. It's still very important to be noted that, that protein intake is incredibly important even on those diets. And that ends up being an area where critics, uh, uh, personal critics come out and say, it didn't work for me. It was very bad. A lot of the time, that's the one variable that they miss is they're eating these fruits and vegetables, but they're eating, they're not eating enough protein. So they start to see muscle wasting they start to feel a lot weaker and things like that. So still making sure that you're getting adequate protein ends up being a, a very important thing for it as well. Yeah, a couple of things there. One, completely agree that, that uh, uh, the calorie side of things is, is fascinating. And I, I can complement what you said by the studies that have been done on all the different animal types that this has been researched, that calorie restriction leads to longer life and less disease in every single animal that's been studied. Uh, where where the animals are not allowed to overeat, 
Um, and yeah, so right. over overeating is one of the most detrimental things that we can do. And it's easy to do if we're eating, you know, a lot of high fat foods because it's so calorie dense, isn't it? You know, um, yeah, and it tastes great. <laughs> yeah, it tastes great. Yeah, you want to eat a lot more when it tastes good too. So it, exactly. And then the other thing um, that you mentioned about uh, just managing protein intake on a plant based diet and the sphere of social network that you have is going to be more focused on that than say my sphere of network because. You are, are surrounded also by people who are elite bodybuilders, people who want to, as a career, have a wonderful physique. And here, it's the heightened requirement for protein uh, focus and protein intake. And that completely makes sense as well. Yeah. I mean, definitely the focus of the level of protein is definitely higher in an athlete, somebody that's incredibly physically active. But I think that there's still, you always want to try to look and, you know, anybody that's watching this can just simply Google macronutrients for my age or mac proper macronutrients for, for somebody that, that has an ailment, rheumatoid arthritis for inflammation. And you, you'll see that the protein requirement that I have or someone that's an athlete is definitely higher. But the level of protein still associates to so many things that are beneficial to them. As far as, like I said, just muscle maintenance is so important because those things, again, is the, the proper strength and the circulation and those things that the proper amount of muscle mass, mass has becomes very important. And also is the thing that's super important to realize is it's when it's hard to be mobile is it's easy to lose muscle already. So when they're not able to exercise and do things, it's very easy to waste muscle away. One of the clients that I had, we spent almost a year just trying to get him to be able to do a shoulder press where he would straighten his arms all the way out because just just the mobility of straightening his elbow out was hard. And we had to try to grow his triceps and other supporting muscles to help aid in pushing that little by little. And it's incredibly, incredibly difficult to gain muscle when you have an advanced state of rheumatoid arthritis, because you're at that point, so little can cause a flare up. You have so little muscle to support the, the mobility exercises we're trying to do that you're fighting a really big uphill battle. So the one thing like you had mentioned, how does it still affect me? That's a key thing that affects me is the times that I've had surgeries, I had a hernia surgery. When I have to go back to exercise, it reminds me with a slap in the face that I have rheumatoid arthritis because anybody that's been an athlete for a very long time and has four weeks off can go back and do a little less than they normally do. And they, they go back into it. You know, you might've lost a little muscle. You put on a little fat. You're not as strong, but you just work your way back in over a week or two and feel good. It could take me four or five months to be able to be at the tolerance I was again. And I feel so sore and so sore. And I can do two exercises and I'm done where normally I might do six exercises at a, at a higher weight, and higher intensity. So the big thing is that protein requirement is definitely less, but it's, it's an important factor to keep in there, even with the fruits and vegetables, because it's going to maintain that muscle mass or help you build it. And then once you do, don't stop moving. That's the key that I've told each of my clients is don't stop moving. Now the one client that was his main goal was just mobility. He didn't want to be a big, strong guy. He just said, look, I want to be able to to pick my grandkids up. I want to be able to open a door and push my arms straight. Once we got there, I just told him, your job now is just don't lose it. You know what I mean? Just keep moving because you saw how hard it was to get this thing moving again. So once you get that, that mobility and you build that muscle, consider it to be a, a precious commodity and be very careful with continuing that, that diet and continuing the protein and continuing the exercise. Yeah, I love it. I've highlighted that. That's going to go in the little clips that go online. Thank you. That's fantastic. I'd love to get Joanne and potentially even Corey to, to in future episodes and, and have them come on and tell their stories if you can awesome. help. Yes, yeah. I, I'll her up for sure. And she's she's a riot. She'll be entertaining and she's yeah. uh, and she's got her story. Like I said, her story is amazing. So I would love to connect to you guys.
That would be that would be tremendous. So just to wrap up, I'd just like to say thank you. This has been fun and uh, really uh, really inspiring and educational. Is there any um you know you've you've got this unique position where you've had, as I said, some really really lows in your life and some really really high successes, and that is there a sort of mindset or a self belief that you have about your life, you know, or about life in general that you fall back onto when when times are tough that that you would like to to share? Yeah, um, I think there's a, a few of them. You know, one is like I'd mentioned before that just became super key is my current situation does not define me. You know, I might be somebody who's immobile. I might be somebody who can't go for a walk. That's not who I need to be. That's not who I am. That's my current situation. And that was really important because a lot of us that are in a spot of being de- feeling defeated, you start to believe that is who you are. I am this. I, and you, you start to use negative, negative voices. I'm crippled. I'm, you know, I'm this. You start to be really hard on yourself with the ways that you associate with the person you see in the mirror. And you, you, that is something that is so easy to do, is so natural. And so many of us do it. That is something that I've refused to do. Uh, my dad used to always say that it was a bad word to use the word can't. So at the dinner table, if I said can't, it was like saying the F word. Um, and he would always have a corny saying uh, that I hated as a kid because it was so annoying where he'd say, there is no such thing as can't. If you take off the T, you have can. And so it was one of those, you know, annoying dad sayings. Um, but what I noticed was as I got older, I never said can't. And when somebody would say, could you do something? I'd say, I'll try, you know, let's see. And I never counted myself out because I just wasn't in the mindset of saying I can't do something. So, you know, if if we can eliminate saying can't, and it's something I tell my clients now, if I put a barbell on the floor and say, I want you to deadlift that, and it looks like a lot of weight, most of them say I can't, they won't even try. So don't count yourself out of the fight before you've given yourself a chance to prove you wrong. Like go in there and give yourself a benefit of a doubt and say, you know what? I don't know how much weight that is, but let me give it a shot. Let me try. You know, I don't know what I'm capable of, but let me, let me see before I count myself out. So I would say those would be two big things. Don't, you know, don't let yourself be identified as the person that is the situation you're in. That is not who you are. That is your current state or your current situation. And don't count yourself out is these are situations where I think a lot of the time, the odds, I have a shirt that says like the 0.000009 is the percentage chance that I would have with the history I've had as far as legally in school that I would have had the income that I've had. And so that's the percentage. And I relate that back to when I had teachers that would talk to me and tell me, look, if you drop out of school or you get in trouble, here's the odds that you'll end up dead or in prison, you know? And they do it to be helpful, to show you that it's bad, but you start to believe those odds are so against you. So somebody watching this might say, I have so many friends that have this or I've watched this and so few people end up asymptomatic, like you mentioned. Why can't you be one of those few people, you know? And that's what, it it sounds corny, but that's what we have to believe. If you're gonna wake up tomorrow and go from the person that has to go buy a wheelchair later to the person that's going to end up being able to do all the things you ever dreamed of. You, nobody else has to believe it except one person, and that's you. You have to at least believe that it's a possibility. So I hope that some of the people watching can try to, you know, that I understand how defeating it can feel, but don't allow that to be who you are. And you have to just little by little set very small goals, like I mentioned, was for somebody to sit and watch this and for me to say, you have to believe that in a year from now, you could be a fitness competitor or an example I've given. I don't expect, and I don't think that's natural for people, but just set one small goal today is to say, I think that tomorrow I could eat a little better. Or I think tomorrow I could go out and go for a short walk and see how that feels with the, the 10 squats that I've mentioned on here. And what's natural is when you start to do those little things, they start to build confidence and you go, I went for that walk. I'm kind of proud of myself. I didn't let myself down like I thought I would. And I never started off doing this to say, I'm going to create a multinational corporation. I just wanted to do something I loved. I felt 
fairly defeated as an individual, but I was willing to set those small goals. And before you know it, you wake up and just go, I do have the confidence in myself to set these huge, astronomical, ridiculous goals because I built up that faith in myself and proven myself right enough time. So, you know, take the leap today to set that first small goal and see how that snowball can kind of build. Thank you. It's uh, absolutely fantastic. And I really appreciate the amount of time you've spent with us. Uh, It's been amazing. Larry, thank you so much, my friend. Awesome. Thank you, brother. We'll talk soon. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Rheumatoid Solutions. If you'd like to get more help to live an easier, healthier, and happier life, visit rheumatoidsolutions.com.